Luke chapter 8, I'd like us to look at that passage that Pastor Jim read, verses 26 to 39, this incredible account in Jesus' amazing grace. Let's open in prayer before we look into Luke chapter 8. God, thank you for the mighty, all-powerful God that you are. And Father, thank you for the example of we get the Godhead, a picture of your love, your compassion, your mercy, your gentleness to us in this story. God, I pray that we will leave here different than we came in, that we will make applications in our lives to your glory. I pray in Christ's name, amen. The transforming power of Christ. Back in 1979, Dr. Kempton, who was president of the Association of Baptists for World Evangelism at that time, um, came to our Bible college visiting um, to speak this one particular day, and he brought with him um, Gary Maddox, who is the gold glove center fielder at that time of the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, I just happened to be a really big Phillies fan, and so I went up to greet my friend, Dr. Kempton. I knew Dr. Kempton. We were in the same, we were members of the same church in Cherry Hill. I played ball with his boys and been in his house several times. So really, I wasn't going to see Gary Maddox. I really wanted to see Dr. Kempton, who happened to be just coming back from a, a trip from China and just happened to have a nice conversation with Gary Maddox at that time. Now, jump forward two years in 1981. Lynn and I were out in San Francisco. We were traveling a month with my parents um, out west, and we stopped in San Francisco, and the Phillies happened to be playing um, the Giants, and so we decided to catch the game. So we went to the game. We went early and went down to the ball field hoping to talk to Gary Maddox and some of the players. And so as they're coming off of the field, I kept calling, Gary Maddox, Gary Maddox. He didn't look up at me at all. But then I said, Gary Maddox, I'm a friend of Dr. Kempton's. He came right over to me, and we had a nice brief conversation and talked a little bit because of my association with Dr. Kempton. But as valuable as it was at that time to know Dr. Kempton, to meet Gary Maddox, it is far greater than I'm able to say, I know someone far greater, someone far more powerful. I know the one who's God, Lord God Almighty, omnipotent king, ruler of the universe, rock of ages, prince of Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and Lord of all. He is the first and the last. He's the omnipotent one. I know the one who is the keeper of creation and is the one that created all. He is the architect of the universe and the manager of all times. Um, I know the one that is always was, always is, and always will be. The one that has no end and has no beginning, the eternal one. I know the one who was bruised and brought healing. I know the one who was pierced, and yet he eases my pain and your pain. Um, I know the one that was persecuted, and yet he brought freedom. I know the one that was killed, and yet is alive and brings power to us. We know him. We know the all-powerful, the eternal one. And we step into this awesome passage, and we just feel the truth of that scream forth that Christ, who he is, but also why he came. Before we look into Luke 8, let me just talk about the background of a parallel passage in Mark chapter 4. Mark 4 and Luke 8 are the same passage. And in this beautiful passage, as we step into this passage, first in Luke 8, 
We're reminded of who Jesus is. And that's really what's coming forth in this, this whole story. The disciples have to get who Jesus Christ is because of what Christ is going to call them to do. And so in this whole flow of numerous stories together, we look up even in Luke 8, 23 to 26, and as they're traveling um, in 22 to 25, as they're traveling on the Sea of Galilee, this storm envelops them and covers them. But what would happen? They wouldn't understand that Jesus Christ is Lord over even the sea, over all of the world. And then they see Christ in 26 to 39. The disciples would see Jesus, that he's Lord over the demons. Then the story that immediately follows, the woman touching the friend of Jesus' garment, that Jesus is Lord over sickness. And then going to the man's house and raising the girl from the dead, they would get that Jesus is Lord over, over life. He's Lord over death. And then we step into chapter 9, and Jesus sends them out on mission. See, they have to understand who Jesus is, then stepping them out on mission. The disciples are sent forth to proclaim the gospel and to bring also healing. And then we go a little bit further in chapter 9. And the question is asked by Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. And some of us were there. And in that backdrop of all paganism, he says, Who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they give their answer. Then Jesus zeroes in and says, Who do you say that I am? And then in chapter 9, verse 35, we have the ultimate answer from the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So this is the backdrop of the context in this story um, as we step into it. A lot of it just flowing together. So if I were to give a big idea of what I'm really looking to accomplish this morning, um, may Jesus, who, who is Jesus? Who is God the Son? May we understand that. May Jesus, who is God the Son, and he conquers the power of evil, may we allow him to work through our lives. It's enough to have this understanding of who he is, but the reality is, God, may, may I allow you to work through my life. May I be obedient because of who you are. May I be obedient in every aspect of my life and how I'm going to live, how I'm going to act in all of my relationships because of who Christ is. So as we step into Luke 8, I referenced earlier just the context as we look at Mark chapter 4 um, without turning there. Mark 4, if you were to read all of it, you'll see in verses 2 and verse 33, the Lord had a long, exhausting day of teaching. He's giving many parables from sunrise to sunset, involved in multiple sermons, teaching and explaining them to the disciples, then going out and teaching more and explaining. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of healing and that kind of ministry also going on. So Christ gets into the boat absolutely exhausted, after a long, busy day. And what happens when he gets in the boat? Well, you know, he falls fast asleep. He's exhausted from a long day of ministry. Um, well, then we, we come into verse 26. And we see that it says here in 26, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. What's happening here? Jesus gets in a boat on the one side of Israel, gets in a boat, crosses the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to the other side. What's happening here? Is, you know, Luke just kind of like running out of things to say, and he just throws down a geographical note? Is that really what's happening here? I just want you to know that he went opposite the side of Galilee. There's something far more that's happening here. I want to remind you of Luke 2.32. When Simeon came into the temple, and this is a picture of some of us on the Temple Mount, but the temple used to be here. When Simeon walked into the temple... 
grabbed, held the baby Jesus, and he spoke these prophetic words. And these words that he spoke, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's exactly what's happening here. This is the first time that Jesus is now leaving Jewish land, going across to the Gentiles, and the gospel starting to now expand to the Gentiles. This is the fulfillment of that, of that passage, of that truth. So it's more than just a geographical note. Luke wants us to know now he's beginning this international ministry. He's going worldwide. He's now stepping out of Jewish lands and he's making an impact going worldwide. First occasion stepping into Gentile territory. What is he doing? Why is our Lord going into unclean territory to the realm of tombs and demons and pigs? Why is he going there? Because he has a divine appointment. He has a divine appointment with one individual. The Lord's going to travel all night, leave the leave the Jewish shore, travel all night. How many hours? Six, seven hours? Go six miles in a windstorm, land on the other side, spend hours with this man, then come back hours across the other side. He's going to take a chunk out of his ministry to minister to this, to this one man. There's a lot of lessons that Jesus is trying to impress upon the disciples. He taught earlier the day before the sower, the parable of the sower, all the kinds of seed, He's now giving an illustration to Luke 8, verse 8, the good soil. I want you to see what good soil produces. 30-fold, 60-fold. Here's 100-fold. This man's going to produce something incredible. What will happen? So as we step into our passage in verses 26 and following, the transforming power of, 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 of Christ. Jesus crosses the shore, and he's now received by this one demonic man. Um, it says in 27, when Jesus stepped out of the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. You know, we could be pretty sure this man's not the welcoming committee of the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee Chamber of Commerce. You know, he doesn't have this position. We're going to welcome everybody coming. There, there's something far more that's happening here. What is the condition of the man? What used to be his condition? It says, a man from the city. So this man wasn't always in this condition. It describes him as from the city. He had seen better days. He'd been part of better days. There was a time when, when he lived amongst his countrymen. There was a time where he, when he wore clothes, that he was normal. But now in his shame, his loss of identity, and his desperate plight, he now is in this state and he wears nothing. And worse than that, we also notice that he's possessed by not one demon. We'll talk about how many, but right at the point we see plural, demons. So he's in this most miserable condition. And he doesn't live in a home that has a nice nightstand and little cot. He lives in caves, caves that are cut out where dead people would be buried. And apparently it's close to the sea. So he's in this most miserable condition. And then to make it worse... He's inhabited by demons. They saw in this man an opportunity, uh, this dark condition to inhabit and co-inhabit and dwell him. And th in this poor creation of God, these miserable, re rebellious creatures, these fallen angels, these demons inhabit him. And they do whatever they would like to this miserable man and he can't change his situation. Th do you feel his plight? This man is a no-hope man in a no-hope environment. 
He's in a miserable situation. He was reduced to a wild animal running around, harming himself in an embarrassing condition and situation. He's demonized, marginalized. He's hopeless. Hopeless. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him. It's a cool verse. The demons concede power immediately to Jesus that they stand before the one that they understood. The disciples don't quite get it yet, but they got it. They knew whose presence they were before. There's no battle. There's no fighting. There's no disciples jumping behind rocks and a lot of light flashing all around. There's just an immediate bowing before Jesus. Mark uses the word worship. I'm pretty sure they're not worshiping because they're adoring him. Pretty sure they're not worshiping because they want to show him reverence that, he, that is his due. They don't have a choice. You feel that? You know, I look at this verse. It's pretty incredible to me in many, many facets. Um, I want to say, make believe you're demons, but that's not a good situation. So let's not go there. But the demons, what do you, what do you think the demons would have done when Jesus was coming to their shore? What would you expect them to do? The superior's coming. They know they're going to be defeated. They know there's no way to beat him. Don't you, when do you expect them to run away, right? Don't, like maybe hide, go far away. Jesus is coming. When did they find out that he was coming? Did, the, did Satan tell them as Jesus is making his way across that Sea of Galilee? He's coming. He's coming to your shore. I can't stop him. Did the demonic man, when he ran down, suddenly realize whose presence he was in? But what I want us to get is that the man, the demons had no choice. They were drawn like a magnet. They had to come and fall down before Jesus. They had no say in the matter. Jesus, who he is, he's the Lord over the demons. He drew them because he had a divine appointment with one man that greatly needed his help. And he was going to change everything about this man's life. So in this awesome divine appointment that the creator of the universe, the master of the universe is there. He draws these men, these demons, and they throw themselves down before Jesus. You got to understand, demons hate God. They're not fans of God. They don't have in their back pocket five easy ways to become friends with God. No, they hate him. They loathe God. They're in rebellion against God. They're trying to convince as many people as they can to reject God, Christ the King, so that they could be with them in their hellish abyss in all of eternity. They realize they're defeated, but they hate God. The demons fall down, and look what they say. What have you to do with me? That's the man speaking, the demons through the man. Jesus, son of the most high God. What are you, Jesus, what are you going to do with us? Jesus, son of the most high God. Did the demons understand who Jesus was? Did the disciples understand who Jesus was? Back in 8, what is it, 25? Um, where it says, I think that's where it is. Um, who then is this person after he calms the water? Who is this man? And now here are the demons in the next story. 
Jesus, Son of the Most High God. They understood who Jesus was. You get that? They knew who he was. They were able to look through his humanity and understand who was the person that was before them. You see, because Jesus came for one purpose. Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. Jesus is an opponent to the demons. Jesus is the demon's creator. You, you, we all know that. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1, all talks about Jesus Christ is the creator. Jesus spoke the worlds into existence. In the beginning, God, well, who is that? It's God the Son that's creating the world, Genesis 1, 1. So he spoke the world in existence. These demons were subservient to Jesus at one time in the past. And then Isaiah and Ezekiel give the stories of Satan and his rebellion. And a third followed Satan. But they know who Jesus is. And they stand before their creator. Look at the request of the demons. It uses a word, um, beg. I beg you do not torment us. And then in verse 31, and they begged him to command um, him not to command them to depart. So here are the demons before Jesus, and they're, they're going to make some, they're going to be some begging. But before we get to that, look at verse 29. I just want to highlight this man's condition. He had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, and it happened. He was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This man is in a horrible condition, absolutely controlled by the demons. The townspeople would get you know, all the town people would jump on this demon, be a demonic man, chain him, shackle him, and then the demons would come upon him and just smile and break it like it was just a piece of string. He's in a miserable condition, but that all is about to change. So Jesus says to the demons, because he's highlighting, I believe, everything, highlighting for the disciples to get who he is and how powerful this person is, Jesus, because they're about to go on ministry and eventually after the resurrection, change the world, turn it upside down. So he says to the demon, what is your name? And the demon gives kind of an invasive answer. He doesn't really want to say, well, my name's kind of like Fred or Tom. That's not, I know a Fred. Sorry, Fred. Let me change that. <laughs> um, he gives, well, my, my name's Legion. Legion? What's Legion? It's not really a name. You know how many Legion is? It's not one. It's not ten. It's not a hundred. It's not a thousand. It's not two thousand. It's not five thousand. A Legion of soldiers, 5,600. We're 5,600 in this man? Probably. This man is the feeding ground for a host of demons. And they're all in him. Jesus is standing before the disciples. I want you to understand my power over demons now. You saw my power over, over the sea, that only God could do that. You're now about to see my power over demons. You know, it's not just one demon or a couple demons. We're talking about a great host. We sang the song, what a mighty God we serve. Wow. What a mighty God we truly do serve. The demonic world is begging. They realize that there's a day coming. And in verse 31, they beg Jesus, please, please, you know, don't, don't throw us into the, into the abyss. They understand that there is a judgment day set. And everyone that has 
not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you ought to be just as scared as the demons were. Because they're afraid at this appointed time that they're now to be shackled. They're about to be cast from all of the evil activity that they do and thrown into the abyss waiting for the final judgment. And they barter, they beg Jesus. In desperation, they look in verse 32. They look, they saw a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside. And they see these pigs. Mark's gospel says there are 2,000. Um, you do the math, today's per pound, three to 400, 300, 300 to $400 um, a pig. Um, you know, that's times 200. That's a chunk of change hanging out there. And so they say, can, can we go into the pigs? Knowing the compassion of Jesus, these demons realize Jesus isn't going to let them hang out in the countryside. Jesus isn't going to let them bother this man again. And so they look for a recourse. Can we go into the pigs and inhabit them? The transformation power of our Savior. We step into the end of verse 32. So he, they, um, they begged him to let them enter these pigs, so, they gave, so he gave them permission. Um, focus on the absolute power of Jesus. Focus on these demons, these 5,600 demons. It's used twice the same word, beg, and then it's the word that's found in our verse here in 32. Let and permission, it's the same Greek word. So the picture we get, they're begging, they're begging, let and let, let and permission, by the way, is going to a superior and asking a request. You're pleading with them. You're begging with them. You're pleading that they will give you a request. For example, many years ago, and I'll leave my daughter anonymous lest she be incriminated, but on this one particular day, it was discipline time, and she had, um, um, I don't even remember what she did. So I took her upstairs to to her bedroom, and I was going to administer loving discipline. And she quickly hugs and starts kissing me. Says, oh, daddy, daddy, I love you. Please, daddy, I love you. Please don't spank me. Daddy, I love you. And just kept going and pleading with me not to spank her. And then when she saw she was in serious trouble, she starts to jump from one side of the bed to the other un- until I caught her. That is what the demons here are doing. They're begging They have gone to a superior, and they use the word beg, beg, let, um, permission. You know, this is an awesome picture of what's happening here as we look at what God's going to do one day in the future. It just gives us a sneak preview of what kingdom life is going to be like when King Jesus comes, and he's ruling, and he defeats all evil. And his kingly rule is demonstrated over demons, over Satan, over all of the world. And Christ as God the Son rules on the throne in his messianic kingdom when evil will be squashed. But until then, how does this apply in our lives? When we look at this power of Jesus, we look at his compassion, we look at who he is. 
Remember what I started, stated as my big idea, what I was after? May Jesus, who's God the Son, and he conquers evil, may he be allowed to work through our lives. So how do I let the Supreme One work through my life in every situation? How do I realize who he is, his compassion, and his power, and his identity, and I bow before him, God, work through my life. You know, we come into struggles and problems at different times in our lives, and we go spastic and we try to manage it and we quickly call friends and we talk on the phone or we check out our, our savings account or we, we beg and plead with um, those that are receiving bills and if, you know, if they could delay a little bit and we're panicking. Just drop on our knees and give it to Jesus. Doesn't mean we have to be wise in our stewardship, but when problems come about, give it to the Lord. Or when we're overwhelmed as if we feel like we're going to just drown in a sea of problems. Jesus, the one that calmed the storm. Jesus, the one that kicked out the demons. He's in control of all of life's situations. God, I, I, I don't see the future. But I know the one who controls the future. God, cause my heart to be calm in you. Cause me to trust you. We look at how it packs our everyday life of who Jesus is and what he wants us to do. God, I want to be involved in the lives of people. I'm not going to just live for self. I'm not going to just serve self. God, give me a vision how I can minister to people in our church family that have needs. Help me to get to know them and serve them. Or how about our neighbor that doesn't know Christ? You see, when we understand who Jesus is, we understand his right in our lives, it should change everything. But we'll pick up more on that in a moment. I want to look at the townspeople's perspective. What do they do? When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they flee immediately into the town. They're going to give a first-hand report to the townspeople because I think that the herdsmen were watching the townspeople's pigs. And so they go in and tell the townspeople everything that happened. So the crowd comes running out. Now, realize this man was a nuisance. Husbands, dads, how would you feel about this wild man in the countryside? Would you like your wives to go like a little picnic lunch, take the family while you're at work and hang out at the countryside with this man? with naked Norman running around. Would you like that? No, I mean, he's a nuisance. You're scared of that. So these townspeople come. They see this former wild man possessed by demons now sitting at the feet of Jesus. So instead of being driven by demons, he's sitting. Instead of being naked, he's clothed. Instead of saying crazy things, he's in his right mind. Everything has changed. Mr. Naked Norman, Mr. Screaming in the Cemetery Guy, is, has been transformed. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Everything has changed. In verse 35, 36, and 38, three times it uses the phrase, um, demons gone out of him. It identifies, this is the man that demons went out of. This is the man that demons went out of. This is the man that was healed. And just a couple of verses is just trying to highlight he's healed. What the creator did in his life, what the creator changed in his life. In fact, it uses the word in verse 36, the word healed, if you see that. It's really the same Greek word sozo that's used to be saved. So this man was healed, but really the idea is he was saved. He was healed physically, but he's healed spiritually too. There's a complete transformation that happened in this man's life. And it's all because of Jesus. Christ is in the business of changing lives. 
Pastor Jim even prayed in the prayer in the opening, if there's one here that doesn't know Christ, may today be the day. You see, Jesus Christ is in the business of changing lives, lives of people that are following the lives of Satan. You may not be inhabited by demons, but to follow the lives of Satan, hey, you know, I could get to heaven on my own. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Everything's great. I'm in church. I'm going to give a couple dollars. Cool. What's great? I'm heaven bound. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing else that one becomes a member of God's family. Christ changes lives. Verse 37 is one of the darkest verses in this whole passage and maybe one of the darkest in the Bible. Then all of the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart for they were seized with great fear. What did you expect these people to say to Jesus? You're amazing. Look, I can't believe what you've done. Would you put a six-week conference on how to solve life's problems? Would you be the secret speecher every day, all day? Or maybe they should have gotten together and they said, listen, they should have announced, you know, Mr. Naked Norman has been healed. Speaking tonight at the greater Gatineen's region of men's dinner will be Norman and he'll be wearing his clothes and he'll be in his right mind. I mean, they should have put on like these kind of banquets or meetings. We want to hear what this guy has to say. Would you please leave? Would you leave us? They were more frightened by the power of God the Son than by the power of Satan. They were terrified. They knew how to control Norman. <laughs> They didn't know how to control Jesus, and that frightened them. I think also these people are indifferent. They're ticked off. They're greedy. They're selfish. They're, they're money hungry. I think they're angry with Jesus because he's just wiped out a, a powerful financial resource for them, and all they see is the dollars, and they don't want him around. But I want to bring up probably my, the point that I have over the years enjoyed the most. Did Jesus know the townspeople would reject him? Did Jesus, the one that's all-knowing, know that? So here's the picture. Christ, on this particular evening, tell the disciples, is getting a boat because he has a divine appointment for one man. He carves out of his busy schedule the night fighting through the storm to get to the other side. He lands. I'm sure he spent hours with this man and then goes back. I mean, you talk about a CEO that's extremely busy, but he did it all for one man. He knew the townspeople would reject him. And I look at that truth and I'm reminded that Jesus cares for the one. If whatever you go through situations and challenges in life, you just feel so alone that there's nobody that there to hear you or your parents don't get it or your spouse doesn't get it and you're just hurting. Jesus is there. He cares for the one. He is always there. But we're going to see a far more of what really he cares for far more than the one. It just explodes. Um, but Jesus came to change one man's life. Verse 38 the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. The same Greek word that the demons use, begging. The demons are begging. 
This man's now begging. Same word. He's begging with great intensity. He's pleading. I just, I just can't see my life without you. He's so grateful for what the, Jesus has delivered him from the demons, delivered him from the embarrassment, delivered him from all the harm and the pain that he was experiencing. He no longer has to obey their evil desires and commands and, and crush himself. He, he's been set free. And he just has to be with this person. I, I, can't, I can't stand to leave you. He had to stay with Jesus. Has Jesus done less for us? Those of us that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, has he done less for us? I mean, has he? Do, do I have that same craving that I've got to be with Jesus? Do I get up in the morning and I just can't wait to the point I even forget to shave because, oh, it's, it's, it's daytime. It's time to meet with Jesus. That I hunger and I get, open up my Bible and maybe play a song and I, with tears flowing down, I'm just sitting at the feet of Jesus. Do I crave to be with him? If we don't, I think it's a twofold problem. If I don't crave to be with Jesus, okay, maybe it could be more than that, but I'm forgetting two things. I'm forgetting who he is, and I'm forgetting what he's done. I think it's always that. When I do what I do in life, I get involved in disobedience or sin or ugliness, self-centeredness. I'm forgetting who Christ is. I'm forgetting who he is. I'm forgetting what he's done for me. For me, just to stop and think, wait a minute. Jesus Christ is... It's God the Son. I've put my faith and trust in Him. He's my Savior. I am His child. And when we realize what He's done, this is Bethlehem. We had gone to the shepherd's cave and we came back from the shepherd's cave and people were um, hanging out in a group and using this one particular building. I went behind this building and had maybe five minutes of just sweet, sweet fellowship with the Lord. I took this picture and just started to think about what happened some 2,000 years ago as the shepherds are out in the fields and they're watching the flock. And I believe these shepherds were godly men that yearned for the Messiah to come one day. And as they're watching this flock, all of a sudden the the sky lights up with angels and it's incredible announcement that says to them, for unto you is born this city, this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I thought of Christ came and that announcement was made somewhere out there. See, I need to bathe my heart daily in those truths that Christ came for me. And then a little bit later, we went to this site and to envision, whether it's the real empty tomb or not, but this is kind of the way it was, to envision the tomb and to thank the Lord, God, thank you for my salvation that you paid for and for the resurrection of Christ because Christ rose again, Satan's been defeated, I will be victorious over death also and over sin. You know, maybe we, we struggle in our daily walk because we forget what Jesus has done for us. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Hail him who saves you by his grace and crown him. May we crown him in our lives because of who he is and what he's done.
But let me just quickly wrap up verses 38 and 39. Um, Jesus turns down this man's request. This man begs. Jesus accepted the request of the demons. Jesus accepted the request of the townspeople. But he says to the, to the healed man, no. No, you may not come, come with me. And he gives him a job. You see, relationship has obligations. Because we belong to Jesus. We are not our own. We don't have the right to just sit and say, you know, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm just going to kind of like this week, maybe this year, maybe the next decade live for myself. We don't have that right. And we shouldn't want it. We should want to serve him, crown him Lord in every aspect of our lives. So he says to the man, no, no, I want you to go home and tell what great things God has done for you. And he got who Jesus was because he then says, I want to tell you what Christ has done for me. Jesus has done, understanding that he was God. And Jesus sent him back to where? You probably have heard this, but just to enjoy the person of Jesus again as compassion. He sends him back to Decapolis, to the ten cities, his home, the people that would know him. Hey, this is my relative that was possessed by demons. Look at the change in his life and all of that truth. But he sends them back to the very people that rejected him. Jesus' compassion. I'm going to continue to send a witness. Okay, you kicked me out, but I'm sending my man back to just continue to bear witness what I've done in Gentile territory because the gospel is starting to go forth in the Gentile territory. The man left immediately. He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. He doesn't throw down his house key or his cave key. This isn't right. I just want to be with Jesus. He accepts and goes and preaches the gospel. Immediate obedience. Kristen Houghton talked to Rikba. She gave us the the tour, the rabbi tunnel tour is what it's called. It's the 90% of the Western Wall that's not exposed or seen go underground and you can look at the rest of it. But Kristen got a sweet conversation, got engaged in a sweet conversation with our Jewish tour guide, Rikva. And then for some reason, Rikva turned around and um, said, who's the pastor? Now, I was talking with her before, but because of her Jewish, um, Jewishness and her, her, I believe she's Hasidic, she asked me not to walk with her. So I, like a puppy, backed up and walked a couple rows back. Then she said, oh, where's the pastor? I want to talk with him. Well, I didn't. So she called me up. She didn't know that I was a pastor. Um, but we started engaging in conversation. And I quoted to her Micah 5.2. Um, it says in your Hebrew scriptures, Micah 5.2. And I said, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you shall come forth one from um, is to be ruler in Israel, one that's from everlasting. And she said, well, no, that's in your scriptures. I said, no, no, it's in your scriptures, in Micah. And I was mispronouncing the Hebrew phrase. She said, oh, Micah. Um, but the point is, he's come. And people like Rikva and others are still looking for the Messiah. There are people that are doing their own thing, serving their own religions and desires, but he's come. And what is to be our response to that? May we that know Christ as our Savior desire God. I want you to be, I want to be obedient to you. I want Christ to flow through my life because of who Christ is and what he's done. I want to serve you and be found faithful to you. I want to spend my days living for you, not living for self. 
He is worthy of that. May we go home and tell everyone what Christ has done for us, be on mission for him, but be a missionary in obedience in every aspect of our lives. Oh, hail the power of Jesus' name. He is worthy of all of our obedience. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for who you are. Truly, God, may we bow each and every morning in submission to you and adoration. May we crave to meet with you. May we crave to get together with you. May we crave to live out your word through our lives because, God, we are like the demonic man. We may not have been possessed by demons, but we were every bit as in a desperate plight as he. God, we have been set free. May we strive to live for you in every aspect of our lives to declare your worth and truly to hail you as our crowned King and Lord. I pray in Christ's name, amen.